This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. There are some excellent dinners coming up uh, at Zupan's at the Cellar Z on Burnside, the best of Oregon dinner and wine series. They have Friday dates throughout the spring and summer. They're all-inclusive, four-course dinners with wine pairings highlighting the best of food and wine in Oregon. Everybody's going to want to look those up. Yeah, and the one closest to us coming up April 12th, it's the Trawl and Trap Northwest Seafood with pairings from Patricia Green Cellars. So if you want to see the full list of upcoming dates and buy tickets, you need to go to zoopans.com. And while you're there, you want to sign up for the news feed. Mm-hmm. So you sign up there, you get exclusive access to deals, recipes, new items, and more. I always pull up my email as I walk into Zoopans and say, oh, here's what I'm, what I'm going to get for free today. I, I do exactly what you're doing. I'm walking in, I pull up my news feed, see what's going on, see, you know, see, what, see what freebie I get. Zoopans makes it easy for you. Right. And they also make uh, Passover and Easter easy. They have a full menu of items ready to create a beautiful spring celebration spread. Isn't it nice that it's spring now? Oh, yeah. No, it's, court? It's, it, this weekend was so crazy awesome. It was and, and in fact, I was actually thinking, I'm like, I need to get the deck ready. I need to go to Zupans and get some meat and grill them up. And on your way to Zupans, here's the deal. Here's the beautiful thing. I mm-hmm. just drove in from the coast yesterday. Roll down the windows and you get to drive with the windows open on the way oh, to Zupans. That's the best thing about this time of year. Yep. The news feed, all those great dinners at the uh, Cellar Z on Burnside, all that information can be found at Zupans.com. Of course, you can always stop by your nearest location, McAdam, West Burnside, and Lake Grove. Here it is, time once again for Portland's Food Scene Podcast. It's right at the fork with your host, Chris Angelis from Portland Food Adventures. And sitting across from me, Court Johnson at the controls. I am. Of kink.fm and uh, and fatherhood fame. Oh, yeah. I spent uh, about, let's see, I counted this up the other day, recently at a dance competition, about 14 hours each day just chilling at Lake Oswego High School. Oh. As my as my daughters danced because they were dancing dancing so frequently, but there was sometimes an hour or two in between. It just didn't make any sense to go home. And and everybody's like, How do you do it? And it, it, you just you resign yourself to this is your reality. And once you've resigned yourself to it, it's Well, but easy this to is do. also you're lucky because when I was a father at that point in time, yeah. we had no cell phones. Oh right. So oh, we yeah, had yeah. to bring a book. No. So, uh, which, oh, yeah. which my, is far, you know, I was on my phone and I, w- for me. and I was watching March Madness basketball games. Yeah, there you go. Doing. So you had your phone. So yeah, I was. Fine. I view it anywhere now with cell phones. You could put drop me anywhere with a connection, and I can. I don't complain about time. Right. I, I, I've spent eight hours in an airport with my phone. Oh yeah. So and what you could one of the things you could do is listen to our archives oh, and sure. our podcast, over two hundred episodes. And by the way, I I kind of knew this, but. You can now access the podcast on Spotify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, pretty much anywhere podcasts can be found. Uh, you can search and find right at the fork. But yeah, Spotify is increasingly becoming a go-to for a lot of people. When it right. Comes to listening. And you and I are deciding whether or not to continue on SoundCloud because we don't really know, we have to do that completely separately. Right. It's like be, it's like the I'd old be, beta VHS thing. Yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to know. I mean, we see the number of listens that come through there. 
It's about 10% of our listeners. Yeah. Maybe 8 and, no, and 5 to 10%. It's, it's winding. I think it's winding down. So. Yeah. I hope the people from SoundCloud aren't listening, but eh. let us know if you we think it would money. be a what terrible thing if we if we stopped publishing that's, to yeah, SoundCloud. That's be, the question. Great, great question to ask. It but, would it ruin your life. But you're pro- anybody who's on SoundCloud is probably behind the time. They should just listen to Spotify. Spotify or, or Apple or Podcasts. I, we, we are on iHeartRadio as well, the iHeartRadio app. Oh, we're on everything. Yep. That's good to know. Yep. And just to th- just court, remember when we started this, people were asking us, what is a podcast in 2014? Yeah. And how do I get it? How do how do I do that? Mm-hmm. Now, now we're 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 very fortunate to be holding our numbers and building a little bit because there are a zillion podcasts out yeah. there. So, therefore, thank you everyone for continuing to listen to Right at the Fork, mm-hmm. and to to reward you for that, we have quite a treat today. Yeah, this was a this is a really interesting uh, conversation because um, the story that's behind this behind our guest Corey. Yeah, Corey Schreiber. I've heard a lot about. I had heard about a, a lot about him over the years, yeah. um, as the guy who was, you know, instrumental at Wildwood, Wildwood. and with our one of the one of the few who really were there when the Portland food scene took advantage and of the our farm local, the table. yeah, took advantage of our local bounty, and yeah. he learned how to do it. So the way this came about is awesome. I've been thinking about contacting him for a while, but he contacted us as a listener. Yeah. Which I was very flattered to hear and said, I've been listening to your podcast for a while. You might, you know, I might be a good guest. And he described, as soon as I saw Corey Schreiber, I thought, what is this all about? And he's now working uh, as a chef for Cisco Systems and noted that over the years in the podcast, I've made kind of some notes or some uh, side offhanded comments, comments about Cisco yep. versus our. Farmers markets yeah. and all that thing. So one of his jobs is to kind of marry that, and he knows a lot of chefs. So it's very interesting. So having gone from Wildwood, and he publishes a wonderful website, which we'll talk about on the podcast, and uh, has done many other things, um, but is now working for Cisco, and we talk about that as well in the podcast. It was re- and a very articulate gentleman, and uh, it was a great conversation. One of those that I would li- that always makes me say, "We need to have you back again." Oh yeah, don't say that on every podcast, but this one was one of the good good ones. As a matter of fact, this is April's a great month. Yeah, for everyone, and it's going to start with. Is this April or is it the? It's 20- April. Well, you're right. It's April. It is April because mm-hmm. I'm in Australia while this is happening. Yeah, yeah we're we're, on, we're on doing this my- from the past. Okay, so uh, April, but Corey Schreiber. Real treat to have him on and um, enjoy. Right at the Fork is proud to be supported by Zupan's Markets. For over 40 years, unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to the freshest baked goods, flowers, and more, with a delicious emphasis on locally sourced items. The best of the Northwest Bounty can be found at your closest Zupans on West Burnside, McAdam, or Lake Grove. And at Zupans.com, eat well, put taste first. Love your food by Ringside Steakhouse. Owned by the Peterson family for generations, Ringside Steakhouse has long been a landmark of the Portland landscape, featuring impeccable service that has set the standard for nearly 75 years. 
Enjoy the finest aged steaks, their world-famous onion rings, and even Ringside's legendary late-night happy hour. Whether it's a special occasion, a business dinner, or just a great night out, make a reservation at ringsidesteakhouse.com today. By Portland Food Adventures. Tempt yourself with an incredible Italian food vacation with Astri Enzyme and a wonderful October journey to Bologna and Emilia-Romagna. It's all at portlandfoodadventures.com under the Trips tab. Contact right at the Fork host Chris Angeles for more information and special savings on these PFA food journeys. And by Gen Air Quality Appliances at Standard TV and Appliance. Standard TV and Appliance is your source for the best of Gen Air and associated brands where you can check out the latest technology in appliances like Gen Air's remote access ranges with a host of other cool features for your upgrade or remodel. Gen Air and Standard, both staples in Oregon and Washington kitchens since 1947. Do you recommend it? It's up to you. So try them, and if you don't like it, your hair looks great, though, so you, you don't like necessarily want to mess up your hair. <laughs> <laughs> Although something My. tells me you've taken enough care so that even with if, when you take the headphones off, you got... You, still, you, want, you mean I can walk about outside again? Yeah, yeah. it won't be hard People to get it back together. <laughs> My hair, on the other hand, <laughs> whenever I put a hat or headphones on, I've got a challenge afterward. Is that why you wear a hat a lot, Court? It's mainly because uh, I'm balding. Oh, balding, and I've got—I've really found out that the way I've been wearing hats lately is the bigger the hat, the thinner I look. <laughs> I, I, I like that. The initial like reason was basically mine, and uh, and secondly, I haven't really figured out that big small hat thing, but maybe subconsciously I have. You know, you got a great head of hair. Someday I'll shave my head. I think I will. Why? Why would know. you do that? I, just, I don't know. My wife threatens me sometimes. You should shave your head. Does she really want you to? No, no. I'm always curious what it'll look like. You know, but you can wait. My dad's bald. You know, well, you I'm can do next. that. You can do that in Photoshop without having to go through the process now. <laughs> get, it's, get, pre- it's pretty easy. You know, it's funny how someone could be a magician in the kitchen, but we have to point out how to look bald if you want to look bald. I don't think you do. I think you Maybe got a great head of hair. We haven't met before. That's true. I've so listened to you a lot. Oh, um, I appreciate that. Yeah. I really appreciated that. There was no bigger compliment after doing this for this long hey, you than know, to hear I, you've been in the background listening. I love radio, and I love the conversations. And for me, it, you know, it really keeps me in the loop, especially when you have the operators on here talking about the tip pools and talking about minimum wage and talking about the, you know, the challenges in the business. And I'm kind of on the outside looking in now. And I really, I mean, I feel their pain. I really do. But it always makes me, it's changed so much, you know, and that's something we can talk about is just that the, the industry to a great extent is the same in terms of like hospitality and commitment, cleanliness, and, you know, just taking care of people. But the dynamics now with food. You know. Well, plus it's it's even more, it's cha- more challenging to talk about now because yeah. I think in the last two years in Portland, it's changed a lot. And so no one's really going to, you know, know what's coming because the economy's changed quite a bit and the economy changes everything and then we don't know what's happening with politics and where it's going to go in the next two years man or with or with you know the the planet so who was that guy on uh on uh, npr on friday they were talking to him and he's a youtube bon appetit like tv star youtube star and he's mm-hmm. in the bon appetit studios in new york city but the guy you know it's fascinating because he doesn't know how to cook he makes everything up. And the beauty of why they're attracted to him and why people are watching him is because he just says, I don't know. I'm just trying this. I'm fermenting this. I'm bubbling this over. This one didn't go well. And I think that's an interesting curve, you know, that we're arriving at in terms of like, we don't know. What the hell? This is fun. You know, let's try it out. Because well, you have all these high tone professionals, you know, that are detailing it out. And everybody's like, I can't do that at home. 
Well, it's no fun. way. <laughs> it's funny because you sent me your website, and I found it. Not that I don't have access to a lot of cookbooks, or uh, certainly mm-hmm. online, you can get a lot of recipes. And I started yeah. snooping around what you're, what you have there, and I thought, oh man, I didn't know all this about artichokes. And yeah. so mm-hmm. I've just been playing around, and never really happy with what kind of cook I am. So, and hey, the website was an unemployment project, <laughs> was it? <laughs> and has it helped? Did, was it a good investment in unemployment? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this, as long as we're talking about it, name the website now so we don't have to remember two older guys who have to remember <laughs> later to say it. Cookingfromthesource.com. Right, okay. Mm, Which yeah. I th- and That was the subtitle of the Wildwood Cookbook was Cooking from the Source in the Pacific Northwest. But I thought it was worth it to kind of open the angle and the, you know, the lens a little bit. You know, who knows? You might end up in Cambodia and you'll be like, Cooking from the Source, we're eating you know, live worms. You know, yeah, well, stay- we've had... You've heard Damien on the podcast who's been over there, talks about eating bugs and so forth. So he's interested in that sort of thing. So for those who don't know, because, you know, a lot of people arrived in Portland in the last few years. So some people, believe it or not, don't even know that there was a place called Wildwood, right? And now finally the space is something else. Right. Bar Uh, West. West. Bar West. Um, But... Uh, let I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how Wildwood came about, your role there, and how your role ended as well. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a good context, you know, historically. And for me, you know, I go go back to my family opening up Dan and Louis Oyster Bar back in 1907. You know, I was working down there, at age 11 in 1972 in a restaurant in downtown Portland when you were, you know, when the big convention was the American Legionnaires showed up with all those shrine the Shriners showed up with their hats and I'm working in the dish room looking out there on the lines around the block and. You know, there were only, you know, three or four places then. They're going to Jake's, Dan Lewis Oyster Bar, Henry Teeley's, Huber's, all these old places that were down 1972. That's the last time I worked in a restaurant, too, somewhere around there. <laughs> That's the first time I worked in a I was, restaurant. I, when Nixon resigned was the last right. time. Right. That's know. right. That summer. I still remember they used to, you know, the journal used to have an afternoon paper, and I'd always come in and they slam that thing in the paper machine. I remember seeing the one, Ford pardons Nixon. Yeah. Stood out in my mind. That's a long time ago now. Yeah, but if so I was working, they, it couldn't have been that long. Right. So, so how old were you when you were working in that in Dan and Louise as in started, a family business? Started at age eleven. You know, my dad was taking cash down there at night. He's a school teacher, and so he had summers off, and he didn't make a little extra money. So he, you know, he, I asked my dad one day. I said, Dad, uh, what's the restaurant like after midnight? You know, because it was open to one a.m. No booze. Didn't serve serve booze. And and the neighborhood was what was the neighborhood like <laughs> then? Because. I know, I don't know what it's like now, but when I first moved here in 05, that was a dangerous neighborhood. At night, you know, during the... The greed that, you know, it's always been kind of transient. My mother had a a bookstore on the corner. You know, I was down there 24-7, it seemed, all the time. That's where I lived, even though we, you know, we lived up in Forest Park. But yeah, I mean, I remember guys coming in and getting their head cracked over the bubblegum machine. You know, I remember my my, uh, cousin was notorious for gracefully kicking guys out that came in and wanted more than just a fish and chip basket or whatever. I mean, it was... It was active. We'll put it that way. <laughs> what could they have wanted that they had to be gracefully kicked out? Uh, money. You know, they wanted. Oh, they oh, were, oh. Yeah, yeah, they wanted to talk. They wanted to talk to the nice people online because there always was a line on the weekends. You know, they mm-hmm. wanted to come in there and panhandle. You know, oh, they I wanted see. Food. You know, my my, uh, my uncle Louie, who took it over, he he was in the Chicago Tribune because he got tired of the guys sitting on the corner of Second uh, and Ankeny, uh, so he took a uh, funnel and he ran the rainwater. He had a faucet actually. And the guys would sit there, and he turned the faucet on, and the water would go down and get them all wet because you wanted them to move. I mean, what a strange thing. You would also think in Portland that might not work either because <laughs> they're getting it anyway. <laughs> it's a little redundant. 
I don't know. Yeah, there's some great family stories, and yeah, we're happy to talk about um, some of the anecdotes. You know, that I think the thing is, is, you know, what's still relevant now? You know, how, how much is that still relevant? Or for the people who have moved here in the last 10 years, you know, some of this historical context, you know, does it help us know where we're going, navigate this, you know? Oh, I don't think it helps us necessarily know where we're going, <laughs> but I think it's awesome to know where we came, where it came from because, you know, I, I jumped in in 05 when it was sort of just blossoming, but you're just going way back to... So Dan and Louise, and then what was the genesis of Wildwood? How did that come about? You know, that was me being away uh, from Portland for 13 years, doing the circuit in uh, Boston, Chicago, and two times in San Francisco. You know, those started as uh, cook jobs and ended up as executive chef jobs in Chicago and uh, San Francisco. And I, I was always coming back every year, and I was just watching the landscape. You know, people thought we were boondocking out here. They thought the wineries were all done in trailer parks. I mean, people were funny. They thought Portland was right next to Seattle. And I kept shaking my head saying, there's more definition than that. There's more going on there. I know what's there. I grew up there. And so I just kind of kept tracking it. And then the, you know, the the premise for coming back to Portland was a lot of things. Real estate back then was good. I had two young children. The schools were great. Uh, I wanted to follow my family's footsteps. I had a pedigree. It was bloodlined into me really hard, you know, to do the restaurant thing. And it was ripe. I mean, it was really ripe. You know, I, I, I got caught off guard. I mean, I certainly looked, I mean, coming out of those big cities and I looked at Portland and I kind of thought, oh, man. We got a lot of work to do here, you know, the service sector, the food sector. But the reality was that there was so there were some things I tasted in the farmers markets back then that just blew my mind, and I thought, why are we not just gravitating to this area? Who else? Who else you, has this? Do you remember specifically what blew your mind? Yeah, I was uh, I was here in 1992. I was at the Beaverton Farmers Market. I brought a uh, my buyer up with me from San Francisco, and he actually helped us open the restaurant later on. And I was tasting the Juniper Grove goat cheese. I, I used to uh, helped out at the Pinot Noir celebration. I was a volunteer. I picked up the phone, called Joni, Joni Rapkin. She said, you want to do what? I said, I want to volunteer. <laughs> I thought that was hysterical. Now you got to wait in line to volunteer. But I went to the markets, and I just tasted raspberries and blackberries, and I thought, wow, this is just blowing my palate away. And I remember that as a kid. But, you know, then you get involved in the kitchens, you know, five years of the Benson Hotels and Apprentice. And then my 13-year run across the country, you kind of, you know, you're looking at other things. You're looking at technique, you're listening to chefs, you're being mentored, and then all of a sudden you come back and pow, hit you hard. So uh, as far as that produce is concerned and maybe some of the proteins, is it still the same or has it gotten better? Has it... Uh, yeah, the, I mean, the distribution channel, right? You know, the, our, our, you know, it's the same, Chris. I think it's the same. I think the quality's there. You know, I think people are... You know, learning to leave it as it is. Hopefully there's not too much manipulation of the product, you know, in terms of it doesn't need to be any better than when it is not transported heavily, when it's picked at its peak, you know, or, you know, harvested at its peak or whatever it might be. I mean, I think the people that are doing the work in the field, that being agriculture, ranchers, fishermen, I think, you know, they're still doing it, but they're dealing with a natural resource crisis, you know, in some ways. You know, that's they're the ones you want to listen to when it comes to product and what's really going on with it. So with, that was the... Um that was really the reason for opening Wildwood was to showcase the bounty of the region. Correct. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, it, did you foresee? It's easy to look back now and mm -hmm. go, "Oh, Wildwood! That was what that and Paley's Place and the Heathman Higgins, and yeah. Higgins. Those started it all." But you didn't know then that that was going to start it all, and what was going to what it would all evolve into, and the history of what Wildwood, you know, the long history Wildwood would have. Well, I, I think, you know, because of my, you know, being a fifth generation Oregonian, I think I did have some sense. You know, I saw what was going on in bigger cities. I mean, really, those those other cities informed me about what was going on with food in America. 
you know, food in America was a fashion, and we were starting to develop regionalism. There were many chefs that were defining that, whether it was Alice Waters, Jeremiah Tower. I worked for Lydia Shire back in Boston, the New England cuisine. I worked in the Midwest in Chicago. I mean, I saw that the regionalism was booming, and I knew that the Pacific Northwest held the jewel. I really did know that. So I think it was a matter of time. I, I, I wouldn't have gone out and, you know, begged people for over half a million dollars to, you know, risk my life and open a restaurant if I didn't feel strongly that we would be able to, you know, repay that and then service it. But I'll, I'll be honest with you, I got caught off guard when I first opened because I worked with a public relations company out of San Francisco just to do all the, the, the packaging and so on. And I realized I didn't write a lot of local stuff on the menu. Like I didn't have Washington mussels and Oregon razor clams and Cascade strawberries. I did, I forgot about that. I just I just wrote it down as I had for years, you know, in other restaurants. So then it occurred to me that I didn't. It led to, I mean, that's the backside of it, right? So mm-hmm. I had to be reminded, like, hey, Corey, you need to tell people where the food's coming from. But it's always the customers that remind you about that. You know, the customer was, you know, we got away from like talking about, oh, we grilled this and we sauteed this and that went in the wood oven and the customers were like, well, yeah, that's nice, but where did it come from? That was an interesting moment. That that is a moment. That was a moment where it really hit me pretty hard in the dining room, where somebody said, "Yeah, that's." But where did it come from? And all of a sudden, I thought, "Wow, we have to talk about where this stuff's coming from." And that, of course, became so ubiquitous a discussion that they parodied it on Portlandia, you know, <laughs> with the, the name of the chicken and the day that yeah. it was picked out. So you're referring back to a point in time where you were professional, you opened a restaurant, you invested your own heart and soul, you got some money, and yet you hadn't really given that as much thought as you have now, obviously. Yeah, I, I think I had forgotten, you know, because I wasn't brought up with that type of menu talk. You know, we weren't into the identification of food. But I think, you know, this is hopefully still true that we're listening to the customers, the consumers. I mean, the reality is whether it's retail or it's commercial or it's wholesale, the the consumers are driving the market. Right. But the restaurants, I think, drive the consumers because when you always see on the menu, you know, such and such from this farm or such and such, then that's what you expect after a while. But there was a point where that wasn't there. No, and the chefs are the their so-called tastemakers. You know, they're they are driving it with you know Vitali and uh, Greg Higgins and Philippe Ballou and Kathy Wims and others that are out there spinning it uh, back then. Uh, they definitely began that as part of the identification process. And I think more so when we left town. I mean, this this was a group of chefs that traveled a lot, where they were going to the Beard House and going to San Francisco or anywhere they ended up. I think that we realized we had to talk about that when we were when we were away. And that was part of the, I think there's that realization when you live in your bubble here in Portland and everything's beautiful and good and you're cooking the food and people are showing up. And then you go away and you're like, what's so special about you guys? <laughs> so then you have to have the conversation. And so you are, you learn to articulate that to a certain extent. And then you bring it back home. You know? Are you still friendly with the, the folks you just mentioned? Because that's a pretty... Uh... Tall order. <laughs> yeah, well, no, that's a, that's a great group that have been around <laughs> a long time and that have done that have generated a lot of James Beard awards and, and a lot of attention from across the country. Absolutely. You know, I think the camaraderie uh, for anybody, you know, you can you can touch on many businesses when you get a group of people who are kind of in the early stages. And, you know, people talk about competition and then healthy competition. And I think that group was way beyond that. I mean, they were they collectively knew that the mission was bigger than we were. And we were just kind of the, the technicians and the engineers that were kind of pulling the levers and you know, writing the menus and talking about the food and going to the market and doing the fundraisers, you know, raising money for the Portland Farmer's Market to keep that going and numerous other causes that we got involved with. I think that we, it was like somebody had cast a net and we were all underneath it and we had to kind of keep pushing it out, you know. I find it interesting that you're saying that because having 
been doing what I've been doing for 10 years now. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact I heard so much about you and um, the fact that you're saying you were just uh, carrying the mission and it wasn't necessarily about celebrity chefs at no. the time. But now you you are a legend in Portland. Anybody who has followed the Portland food scene at, at, at least a little, because now we're, at, you know, we're, we've gone a few generations. So you've got the folks who came through Wildwood, there's a lot of them out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, on my first real, I was reading uh, Food Dude's column mm-hmm. for a long time, and I, I'm sure he's going to listen to this specific podcast, I assume. I think he listens to most all of them. But um, the first inkling I real got, really got about the uh, scene was when this guy from Wildwood left and opened a place in Montevilla. Uh, Mr. Sappington Sappington. and so I started going to that restaurant because that just Ozark the food from the Ozarks just uh, intrigued me so I'd go over there and sit at the chef's counter and he here's this guy in overalls flipping things all over and they're working as a team and he saw how much I, I my eyes were bulging when he was making clams or something he'd stick a little plate in front of me here try these and all of a sudden, that was an experience I'd never had before. So that's a little bit of a tangent. My point was, a lot of people came through Wildwood, and um, a lot learned from you. So do you have anybody that, uh, that came through there that you mentored who has particularly surprised you? And conversely, are there people that you just knew were going to kick ass going at it, coming out of there? Yeah, well, I was talking with uh, my old general manager, Hal Finkelstein, uh, yesterday. And, uh, you know, we, I think we created a stage in an environment where we were going to nurture people. I mean, the management style was, I think, unique in a way that we took it so personally, you know, what we were doing. We were so committed to it. There was nothing corporate about it or nonchalant. So I think that people understood that we, we vested into them. And so we wanted to, you know, inject the entrepreneurial spirit in people. And we did. Jen Louis. Adam Sappington, Brad Root, uh, Rum Club, Michael Shea. You know, even guys that went off and didn't even do food that did really well, like making toys. I mean, well, was, you just handed me a, this uh, Brett Warnock. Magazine. Yeah, he's got his kitchen, kitchen table. table that just came out. He he uh, he and his uh, his wife at the time actually were working at Wildwood. Um, you know, it was a place of passion. You know, and I you mentioned Adam. You know, it's like you can uh, you can take the boy out of Missouri, but you can't take Missouri out of the boy. You know, <laughs> he and I ran together for about ten years. There at the restaurant, lots of travels, lots of stories. You know, he, he was wholly committed. But, uh, you know, he understood that if you dug in deep, he'd get the knowledge he needed. He could step right out and do Country Cat. You know, sometimes cooks got to go two, three, four places. You know, they want all these mentors. But I think I wasn't the only mentor. I mean, there were other people there that were setting the guard. You know, there were about seven managers, both front of the house, back of the house. And I think that, you know, you, you create a family, right? There are ups and downs to that. You know, you get people that get a little... Uh, to attach to the family, and it, and it has some of the dysfunctions of a family, of course, in a restaurant. I was going to just about to say, <laughs> I don't necessarily know if you want to be a family. So right, well, you know, most of these people that we mentioned uh, had that issue because we, most of us at the time, were one ops. You know, we were one operators. You know, nobody had gone into that two, three, four restaurant scenario and used. You know, the ladder that it takes to kind of operate at that level is very different. I'm, I'm a one operator. I was at the time a one operator kind of guy. Because I realized we were we were putting we were putting uh, people out to the landscape landscape you know the culinary landscape needed that talent in this place Portland was very ripe for it still is. Pausing a moment here, Chris, to talk about a great place to go for dinner any time of the week. Ringside. Ringside. Look at that. Hey-o. Cheerleaders. Yep. Ringside Steakhouse. Yeah, in the Peterson family for seventy-five years. This would be the seventy-fifth year, yep. and uh, there's a reason that restaurant has sustained so long. 
Oh yeah, there. I mean, if you're going to a show downtown, if you're going to any event downtown, why not go check out their three course meals? Three course supper, yeah, forty five dollars and twenty five cents before six p.m. Monday through Thursday, and just a little bit more after that. Right, and then also Monday is prime time. Yep. So the prime rib three course dinner, thirty five bucks. Can't beat that. I mean, that's that's beautiful. Beef oh, yeah. that you're going to be enjoying for that price at the Consummate Steakhouse in Portland as well. Yep. And uh, they have, we recently did a spot for them that reeled off their entire happy hour menu. Oh, they have one of the best happy hours in Portland, bar none. Yes. So, and, and you can get that all Sundays, 4 to 5 30. So mm-hmm. there's an hour and a half window on Sunday. And anytime you're ro- rolling around 9 30 to close, excellent happy hour. So you can sample. Wonderful ringside food at happy hour prices. Yep. Never a bad reason to go to Ringside Steakhouse. You can set up reservations online at ringsidesteakhouse.com. Hey, Chris, we'd like to welcome our great sponsor, Gen Air at Standard TV and Appliance. Yeah, it's awesome. They were with us a couple of years ago, but appropriate now, both in their, uh, both started in 1947. And just last year, Gen Air launched a beautiful series of new appliances they really upgraded everything they have two lines rise and noir for you to check out at standard tv and appliance tell us a little bit about them court well both of these lines connect to wi-fi so that you can use them using your amazon alexa or maybe you've got a google assisted enabled device like a google home connect and control appliances remotely like if you want to set the uh, oven before you get home you can do that get real-time notifications you can contact gen air call center through them and get this Get a recipe from Yumly through the device. More than one. You yeah. can do a few of them. And not only that, you can attach your dishwasher to Amazon and get get lo- dishwasher detergent delivered w- without even thinking about it. Nothing is worse than running out of dishwasher detergent and not, not realizing it, but your dishwasher or your washing machine are going to know this. Absolutely. So both the Noir and Rise line feature irresistible interiors illuminated by cinematic and chef's lighting, which is really cool. you got to see these. Smooth racks and flat tines, an expanse of dark glass. Really easy way for you to check out these lines. You can Google search Gen Air Rise or Gen Air Noir. That's one way to check these out, but there's an even better way to do it. Let's go down to Standard TV and Appliance. They have four locations, Mm -hmm. one in Beaverton, two in Portland. The showrooms are beautiful, and you'll be able to see them uh, not only in the showrooms, but on the the showroom floor, and uh, also one in Bend for our millions of listeners out that way. Mm Mm-hmm. Was your uh, were your folks still around when you opened Wildwood, and did they have a lot of what were some of their comments? Um, my mom and dad are still around, which is very pleasant. That's uh, great. Eighty three and eighty five, and they were partners uh, in the restaurant. Took that blind leap of faith, you know. And uh, I think my mother in particular, I mean, because her family is the one who founded the oyster bars. So her grandfather, right. who I watched run that restaurant for years, you know, or her father, my grandfather, excuse me, Louis Arthur Walksmith. Uh, you know, I think there there was pride, you know, that we continue the legacy uh, at that point. I think the question is, you know, does that, I mean, that oyster bar is still open and so on. But yeah, does the legacy still go? You know, it's still in my blood. I have two, I have three kids, but the older kids were in the food service industry. Not so much now. My son still is in food service over at Cairo School, but my daughter got into teaching middle school, but she was at working at Provador. She was working for Dave Machado and Nell Chentro. That pedigree is hard to shake oh, out Oh, not long ago then. Oh, yeah. So she's yeah. just recently yeah. gotten out of it. That's Did also... you want her to be in it um, based I... on 
Uh, based on what you know, was it something you were happy she got out of? Or there's no good advice in the restaurant business, man. All there is is a 12 step program to get you out of it. You know. <laughs> oh man, that's that's the pull quote right there. <laughs> yeah, you know it's delightful, but you know these player coaches, right? You know you play for so long. I, my equivalent, it's restaurant business, is a little like sports industry, man. You can play pretty hard you know, into your 40s, but then you got to figure out whether you want to coach it or not and how. what does that look like, you know, if you're going to make imprints on people, you know, and I feel like I've kind of been in hiding the last decade or so with my uh, time working for the Department of Ag and doing farm-to-school work and then going into this, uh, you know, the Art Institute and kind of that world of nonprofit culinary schools, which we've all seen kind of crash and burn. And that's an interesting topic as to why did it become so popular to be a cook or a chef or whatever it is? And then that whole thing just got swathed and taken away. And, you know, now working for the largest food distributor, uh, wholesale food service in the in the North America, you know, Cisco Foods, it's a fascinating, fascinating journey. Really, Well, is. I want to come back to Cisco because sure. that was the first thing that uh, I didn't know you were working for Cisco or had anything to do with it when you wrote me. And I thought, oh, my the God, that's what he's doing out. now. <laughs> that, that's very interesting. And coincidentally, I sent you a shot this morning yeah. on the way to the podcast in 2015. On this day, mm-hmm. there was a Cisco truck right outside near the police. That's why you bureau. said that. That's right. I and listened to that. One. There was a Cisco. Oh, I did say it. Yeah, then? you did. Yeah. Oh, man. So there was a Cisco <laughs> truck and there were cops all over it. And I captioned that probable cause the, the oh, photo. I, I thought that was kind of fun. But uh, you're talking about interesting topics. So I don't want to move away from that. One of which would have been schools. Yeah. Uh, culinary schools and what has happened to those and how they really fed a lot. So in the early days, it was the Wildwoods and the Heathmans and the Pazzos and the, and I can name other Paley's places that fed a lot of the talent because they didn't need as much then, right? We didn't have as many restaurants then. Then the culinary schools opened and I've talked to a lot of people who went to Western Culinary Institute or this, that. Mm-hmm. They're not really around anymore. And a lot of chefs on this podcast have said, I ne- wouldn't necessarily recommend that as the path. You just got to get in the kitchen and work. What do you feel about that? Well, you know, back in 94, when we tapped into the Western Culinary, I must have had about six students, you know, that came out of their interns, and they were great, you know. I, I mean, I think of people that are, Michael Shrek was still in there, and I mean, gosh, uh, Patty Moody, I mean, the names go on, but th- that was a great crew. You know, I think back then, I felt that that was the main line to get into the business. Um, you know, the business, that being the restaurant business, was misrepresented to a certain extent about what it was about. I think there was a lot of kind of glory and you know, it's kind of a sexy business and it can, you know, you want to be in there. And if you do, you get your namesake. And I think there was, there was a little miscommunication about what it was about. I think what the chefs are saying, which I agree with, is that, no, it's not about that. It's dish pits, it's grease, it's dirt, it's, it's hard, it's stress that you don't know how to spell, you know, you, you know, dessert spelled backward or whatever. I mean, it's just, it's difficult. And I say, so I think it's again, you know, in this country where food is fashion, it was misrepresented to a certain extent and the schools didn't see any slowing down. You know, the floodgates were open and students were piling in around the country and then they got disillusioned. And I don't, I think they, rightfully so, they were disillusioned because it wasn't about that. And what, well, so, uh, what were they, dis, what were they disillusioned about? I mean, it's no secret. I don't know about Portland, but one of the things that's always shocked me, I, I can't say necessarily shocked, but it's been interesting to me is that I'm sure there are some restaurant operators here that are doing pretty well, but. I mean, I don't see them, like, I've been to Spain, where Nandu Jubani is driving $250,000 Mercedes, and that's just one of the cars in his garage. You don't see anything like that here. Uh, uh, close. 
So uh, it's not somewhere where you're going to get wealthy, right? So you have to have a passion for the business. But that also, you know, based on uh, where we are now, that's going to have a big bearing as we go forward because there's going to be larger investments in restaurants because they're more expensive to open now. And you're going to have to start making some big money. Is it here? Can you make it here? Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, I'll just back up a couple steps before we get up to that one too. I think the other thing that I noticed teaching culinary was that the curriculums couldn't change as quickly as the actual industry on the street was changing. And what was going on with like technology and community? What was going on with equipment? You know, transforming whether it was coming out of Europe or coming out of the states. I think that the the schools were these huge, you know, curriculums that just were frozen back in time in the '80s and the '90s. You know. And all of a sudden, it started to expedite. You know, whether you want to talk about sous vide or you want to talk about molecular cuisine or whatever it is, but it was everything was changing. So I think students had a hard time finding footing in that. When all of a sudden, the advancement of culinary arts just exploded, and with that came the investment. You know, that supported restaurants that can afford to have twenty six seats and charge three hundred dollars a person. Probably not in Portland, but <laughs> well, there are a couple that tr- the couple yeah. not necessarily three hundred, but there are a couple that are up there that are. Actually doing well. There's a market for that. There is a market for that. But in terms of like the 100-seat restaurant that can charge that, probably yeah, not. Probably yeah. not. That's, that's the difference. So how much, how much did television uh, affect the culinary industry and restaurants, um, both from a, the, the industry side and the consumer side? Well, from the industry side, you know, we talk about the TV Food Network and things of that nature. It's obviously much larger than that. I mean, you know, food industry moved into entertainment. You know, it went away from the chefs are hidden behind the scenes. You can't see the dining room. The chef never comes out and talks to anybody. You know, it's all hush hush. There's just indentured servitude in the back with people wearing white hats and white scarves and white jackets and don't speak unless you're spoken to. You know, and then all of a sudden it became entertainment. So it just, blew, the doors blew open. And I think that that, you know, did the industry some great favors. When you talk about the ability to promote and get people in and all these ways that you can communicate what you're doing and have your doors hopefully flooded with people. But I think in some ways you can see the rise and fall of that too. I mean, if you don't, if you don't keep the integrity, you don't keep the mission, you don't keep the intent of what you're doing in the restaurant or restaurants, if you have several of them, you've got to wind that really tight because the consumers will pick it apart, you know? So I think that it got blurred, right? The entertainment blurred it a little bit, glorified it a little bit. And now there's this reality to your point about this is hardcore money and this is a million, two million dollars to open a restaurant. That means you got to pay that back in three to five years. And now what you hear out there on the street is that, you know, tech industry gets involved in, you know, returns on these and tech industry sees money turn back really quickly sometimes. Even in real estate, it turns back. But the restaurant industry is still a, a three to 10 year payback if you're lucky. If you're lucky. <clears throat> I mean, I was told five years ago that you don't, you know, as a layperson with any kind of cash to invest, you don't want to invest money in a restaurant unless you just want to be able to get a seat, <laughs> you know, an easy seat, uh, but don't expect it necessarily back anytime soon. No, so. and that was our, pre- you know, we had that with, with our investors, although we were, they, they wanted a seat, they wanted, you know, it depends. Everybody had a different, uh, you know, reason for being uh, part of the show, if you will. Um, but that just leads it to, you know, where, do, where does it go? I mean, where does the money come from? You know, the chefs can't do it on their own. I mean, we're just known as kind of, uh, we're, we're poor folk <laughs> to a certain extent. Everybody's working hard for 2 and 3% margins. You know, if you're doing a million dollars and you're going to drop 30000 on the bottom line after your paycheck, I mean, that's a, that's a lot of passion to keep that up. It oh, really yeah. is. And it's not, it's not anything you can dial in while you're 
quote unquote researching, you know, from Italy or Spain, um, that's well, it's tough work. Well, the other thing that I notice in talking to a lot of operators around the state actually now is that I think the perception of it is still a little bit off in, in terms of like what it can generate and what it takes and why they get into it. You wouldn't believe how many people, you know, come to me and say, well, I retired and I have my retirement fund and I, my wife and I or my husband and I or my partner and I thought, so let's open a restaurant. That'd be a good idea. And I, I hear that three or four times a year. And so it's a little, <laughs> it's a little mis- misrepresented in a way, the industry in a way, because of the entertainment, because of the fashionable side of it, uh, the industry has, uh, I think, in some ways been mis- misrepresented. But there are people, as you know, that do it really well, treat it as a true business, true hospitality, and really want to create the best experience they can. Is there a reason? I know there is, but can you, can you maybe uh, expand upon it a little bit uh, that people like Vitaly Paley and David Machado are now opening restaurants in hotels? That's That's something that's new that... No, it wasn't brand new. I mean, there was Pazzo for years, but that's something all of a sudden we're seeing all, a lot of. And there, I mean, the number of hotels is a barometer for where this city is going, the number of hotel rooms. It's crazy. You can't even keep up with it. It used to be restaurants. Right. Now it's hotels. <clears throat> well, the, and what the hotels weren't, weren't always hotels. Sometimes they're real estate investors. Sometimes they come from different you know, portions of the business field. They, they create a, uh, they take some of the risk out of it. So what they'll do is they will contribute heavily to the infrastructure and to the kitchen. They will develop a contract that says, you know, if you make money, you know, if I make money, you make money. And then there comes a point where if you don't make money, then you're out of here. I mean, they're very cut and dry in terms of like the services they want you to provide with that infrastructure. The first thing they want is the name, you know, whether it's going to be Vitalia, whether it's going to be David Machado. And that's very helpful because that's a huge amount of street cred that goes with it. Uh, but then what they can do is take that edge off. So you're not out there, you know, pondering, looking for a million bucks. You're only looking for a half million in this day and age, you know, and then, and then you can get in there and you can open and lower the risk boom on it. And then you dial it in. You don't really mess around with, you know, you know, weird formulas or experimental this. You take the, you take, you know, your best hits, what you have tested, tried and true, you know, they work. And then you got to find a chef to come in and run it. And that comes with its risk too, because you got to get some guy or girl who in their late 30s is willing to go work, you know, the 12, 13-hour days, six days a week, because the, the other guys, that's not really as feasible anymore. Without necessarily the notoriety, because Vitaly and David are taking, you know, yeah. are the faces of the business. Hard to get above the chefs, although those guys in particular, I think, go out of the way to make sure that I, there's some that, visibility. That they do, yeah. hence you got, you know, Doug Adams and Ben Bettinger out there. I mean, right. Vitaly did it, does an incredible job of yeah. making sure that his... People are taken care of and, and out there. And he does a good job of hiring, too. Yeah. So before, because time goes fast. Oh, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about how you got to Cisco, what you're doing with Cisco. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, just as I do, a lot of people might find it interesting because I've, we've, you know, in Portland, everything's got to be local. Everything's got to be small. And that's not what Cisco is. So at least as far as I'm, I see it. You yeah, can, you can dispel that if you like, but yeah, and I think you should take, we should take that from a couple of different angles. I mean, if you're a chef like me and you're just you know passionate about the business, you just want to stay with it and watch it evolve. You know what it gives me. There's only two chefs in the whole uh, outfit here in Portland, 
And so, you know, what we do is a lot of business reviews. So we're constantly talking to people in the field and trying to, you know, I call it kind of being in the belly of the beast and trying to like move the meter a little bit if you can. So somebody comes in like you and says, hey, I want to open a restaurant. Let's talk about my menu. So you can kind of steer in a very, very small way, but maybe in a large way, if people buy enough food, you can begin to influence the market from the interior. But that's because, every, you know, yeah. Corey Schreiber comes in and everybody's got to be saying, this is awesome. If it, if you didn't have a name, would it be as easy for you to steer the someone's uh, menu or some of their decisions? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't know who I am or where I come from, or that I'm you know a forty year veteran of the food service industry. I think you know it's it's more of doing it with a level of confidence and knowing you know what works and what doesn't work. I mean, trying to get people to read profit and loss statements, trying to get people to understand they have to have a food cost number and and, and pay attention to that. I mean, it's kind of like culinary school, you know, without people paying. $25,000 to go through it. I mean, I'm going to just spend the half a million dollars and open a restaurant and we'll win or lose that. But for me personally, like, you know, I'm sitting on a huge inventory. I don't have huge budgets. I'm constantly touching food that is either, you know, out there raw or it's fabricated or it's plant-based or whatever. I'm constantly looking at the industry as a whole. Uh, you know, as well as I do, larger companies that were formed, say, 40 years ago, much like Cisco, you know, they've come through the times in terms of what the American consumer wanted. Uh, you know, I can go downstairs to the Starbucks here and use them as an example or Cisco as an example. Those companies now all of a sudden have huge power to make bigger change. So whether you're looking at making sure that the, you know, whatever they're buying the produce from is that we're seeing more minorities, we're seeing more females, we can influence that. We can take that from a billion to a billion one in a year. And so is it time for me to wake up? (laughs) No, it's time. I'm sorry. I thought I turned everything off. And that simply means I'm trying to to avoid a $68 parking ticket. That's all. Uh, But what what I'm fascinated by, you know, with Cisco is that the ability to make change, whether we're lowering the carbon footprint, whether we're changing routes so we can lower the fuel down, whether we're charting trucks exactly where they are and trying to minimize that or to get food to customers faster. I mean, the ability of large companies to actually, you know, you know, have some persuasion because now here it is 2019, like even big companies got to pay really close attention to sustainability, got to pay attention to employees. I mean, as an employee, you get treated really, really well. So all these basic things that my friends and colleagues around town that want to offer to their employees, I mean, I get that. And I see a few hundred other people get that too. But in terms of the food, I mean, back to your point, uh, in terms of like the, maybe the stigma that goes along with it. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of work, you know, to do, but I think that when people like me are paying attention and getting into the belly of the beast and got $32 million worth of food underneath my feet every day and thinking, what are we going to do with this? How are we going to communicate this to people? How are we going to get this into the marketplace and use it as a pivotal point, you know, to, uh, to, to make some change, then it's, it's good stuff. But I understand your question. I mean, it's, it, you know, people are like, what? Well, but there's also, there's also kind of this donut or a fried egg. Let's look, <laughs> call it a fried egg. That, like that, you know, in Portland, you know, you're not going to see a lot of chains open up. It's just, nope. you know, in downtown they've, Portland. They've been turned As away. you get further away to the suburbs and you see, you know, there's a Cracker Barrel in, in uh, Preverton and you're going to find a lot of restaurants out there that you don't see here. So is part of your mission to take care of that yoke or to massage that yoke a little bit so that um, it's a little more. I think it's interesting that you make the point that you have, that you really have the power. Cisco has the power to make changes that farmers collectively can make over time, but Cisco can make 
big changes rapidly. Yeah, and even during my years of working for the Department of Agriculture, you know, this is the food equation ultimately is an economic equation. You know, if you look at the state of Oregon, it's got $50 billion worth of agriculture, you know, passing through. A lot of it's going to the port of Portland, off to Asia. Now, I always looked at that as like the really part that keeps all of us in business. The agriculture employs, The stuff we're exporting is keeping us in business? Oh, 90% of the stuff leaves the state. It's yeah. incredible. We talk about wheat and onions and potatoes and stuff. People aren't always aware of that. You know, agriculture is 10% of our uh, employment here. I mean, uh, 326,000 people are employed through agriculture in the state of Oregon. You know, it's huge. And so that's, you know, for me, I have this, you know, it might be a little too wide of an angle. And it's funny to think about a chef in this minute little kitchen, you know, plate by plate by plate, you know, focus, focus, local, local, local. Then you kind of grow out 13 years of doing that. And then you come out of that. And I think to me, the angle is getting bigger. It's an interesting kind of industrialized model, but the industrialized model can also have some of its homegrown, some of its locality, because uh, economically we have to do that. And we really have to do that for all of us to keep this conversation going and, and, and to keep people fed. So I look at it on a very large scale and partnering with Cisco's or the Starbucks of the world's or, you know, the Department of Ags of the world and so on to kind of monitor that. Food safety get plays into that, obviously. Uh, and then the marketing angle. I mean, we have a food innovation center in Portland. That's pretty incredible. You know, people cranking out products. All those, uh, the co-packers down the Willamette Valley, that's a burgeoning industry. You know, we see the Jacobson Salt you know, all these fine examples of things that are put into bottles and cans that are local, too. So I look at it in a very wide angle, and we, we house that stuff at Cisco. We have it. But oh, so you, ha- so you distribute Jacobson Salt. No, we right? don't have Jacobson. We okay. don't, that's a, I'm my personal local favorite, if you will. But it is funny when we'll show them, like, you know, local foods, uh, dairy products, and people will look up and say, I didn't know you had that. And so we have a huge job, you know, to do to communicate that to people about what we have and why we warehouse it because it's an economic thing and it's a request. To your point, Chris, you're absolutely right. People say, what do you got that's local? So they come out in the warehouse. And and, and I think that's got to be part of your mission with the company because you've got you've had long relationships, whether you still maintain some of those or not. That's right. one issue. But the ability to establish local relationships, I'm sure that's one of the things you bring to the table. Yeah, and no I think, pun intended. I always love that. Yeah, <laughs> it now honestly, yeah, it feeds my soul. That part of it really feeds my soul, and getting, uh, keeping the conversation going, keeping the economic side of local foods going, and keeping the communication, and and setting people up for success. You know, we don't want to see going to this people going to this business and, you know, walk the line of failure. I mean, none of us need that. It doesn't. Uh, I think you mentioned earlier. I mean, we're teetering right in this kind of economic turn and food service unfortunately is this disposable income that goes early when things go downhill and so how do we prepare for that and it is interesting you know it's it's technology in terms of what's going on in kitchens i mean that's a hard thing you know how do you get rid of hood systems and have all this equipment that's just wired strictly to itself Mm. you know i mean hoods are forty fifty thousand dollars you know i I think you know that's the other thing we can do at cisco too is educate people about the equipment i mean the equipment alone you know what you can do to minimize that and i hate to say it because to your point earlier if the kids aren't going to culinary school and they're not showing up at the door saying hey you know can i get a job like what people are doing is thinning down the labor and they're letting machinery kind of take that over so how much of this will be handcrafted in 10 years yeah but you can't just right off the top of my head the front of the house isn't going to be well they're we're trying to take that over with machinery <laughs> I, now that i, think I heard about you it. talk about that two weeks ago though. oh man <laughs> well, what's you, your thought on that do you like do you I like having that buying a, a bagel for now 250 <laughs> or three dollars or a croissant for four dollars do you like having the uh, the the uh, 
Square turned around, the iPad turned around, and asked for the 20% tip that you're going to leave on that? See, you, you're an influencer, too, because I listened to you talk about that last week, and I was over at Just a Pasta, which I love. You know, Roland was buying pasta from him back in 96, um, and the woman spun it around, and your voice came into my head, and I knocked it down by, like, 3%. Shame on me. <laughs> well, put it this way. I'm just, I'm just confused because uh-huh. I understand where people have to make a living, mm-hmm. right? And I understand I want to support because I put this stuff up on Facebook, and mm-hmm. people say, oh, you got to leave the people in the industry or people who have been servers. You have to leave 20% no matter what. you got to support them. And then my feeling is... I get that, but I'm really, it's for service. Mm-hmm. And if someone's just handing me a bagel in a bag and then writing it and then bringing it up, I feel like that's up to the restaurant to figure that end of it out. So on the smaller, my feeling is on that smaller stuff, work it into the price. Thank you for letting me rant, by the way. Oh, this sure. is your podcast, <laughs> not me. But work it into the price yeah. of the item and mm-hmm. just don't give me, don't even turn it around and ask, put the tip line on there. Just Charge me 20% more. I'm happy. I don't want to think about it. Well, On so, the other hand, you know, when you walk up and you get a number and you bust your own table, that's also an issue too. So the restaurant industry is going to have to figure that out because they're leaving it up to the consumer to sort of, oh, do I want to take care of this? So that's my feeling in that. But there's, I, there's, there's a lot of culinary student debt service out there that you and I need to finance, Chris. Yeah, Exactly. And, you know, then, then the question of whether how right-wing or left-wing we feel <laughs> as we get older comes into play. But, um, yeah, I, I like the way you put that. I have a question about Cisco because just yesterday I was reading an article in somewhere in the Times or the Washington Post about uh, that uh, climate change. We're not even we're, – we're, we're, we're basically beyond pan- – now the climate scientists are pushing the panic buck panic button mm-hmm. and not even projecting and saying it could get like this you might they're basically saying we've 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 now gone beyond that point two degrees is going to be one thing three degree warming is going to be extreme is cisco do they have their fingers on that to take a look at okay what are we going to do with the food supply how because cisco has a big position yeah. in it uh how are we going to do that and of course I think I've always liked, I like to think we're in better position here in the North Pacific Northwest than, oh God, Arizona is going to be. Um, what you? Yeah. As you know, we can use the bigger word, the carbon footprint. So yeah, there, there are uh, contracts out there for electric trucks, you know, uh, on the horizon over a hundred, I believe. Uh, you look in the warehouses, which are huge footprints in terms of like, you know, all the trucks inside the warehouses are electric, you know? You can only imagine what an Amazon looks like in terms of like minimizing like how things are pulled and minimizing the amount of electricity and power it takes to actually organize all this stuff. So the biggest thing is like where it's coming from and making sure that it gets there eventually with trucks that aren't burning diesel and burning fuel, getting to the dock. And when it gets inside the warehouses, trying to minimize the imprint of what's going on there. But without, you know, minimizing the labor it takes to do it, you know, you can dehumanize that to a certain extent. And then, you know, how it goes back out again. I mean, on trucks that hopefully are electric, you know, and how do you get downtown? So we just vested into 12 new trucks that are much smaller. They're more like UPS trucks, you know. And so you're trying to minimize the imprint through trucks uh, that are smaller. And, and that's, it's huge. If you, th- if you think of 72 of these operating companies, you know, maybe more than that actually in the United States, you know, if you begin to do that on a large scale, you can minimize it. And it's how do we get food? But if you're beyond the tipping point. Yeah. So now the, my, my question is, 
yeah, how are you going to get food? It's one thing to move it, but it's another thing to have it in the tr- to get to produce it and put it in the truck. Where is the company still? You know, what's they still working on that, or has there been? Have you seen some communication about where it's yeah. going and what's going to happen? Anybody can go in and look up Cisco Corporate Responsibility in a website. You'll get a splash page that touches touches on about eight different topics. You know, from you know who we're hiring, what the diversity split is, you know, what we're doing from the carbon footprint on fuel, on electricity. Uh, what we're doing to bring down greenhouse grasses. When you look at their produce company out of the California Fresh Point, you know, in terms of how they're looking at the farms and how the farms are going more in the sustainable mode. So, yeah, the corporate responsibility page for Cisco will get into the big numbers, you know, but I think you and I are always looking at Oregon as kind of the lead, you know, and it has been for, you know, since the Tom McCall era, you know, in terms of like what does it look like to protect your state lines and to keep your state, you know, on the sustainable footprint. I think it's tricky. I've always looked forward to being a vegan. I think that's what's going to happen. We're all going to be vegans. (laughs) You know, it's funny that you mentioned that. I'm glad you provided a little segue. I'm not so sure of his position, but I think it was kind of what you're doing before you were doing it. Do you know Jeff Reidebach of uh, Homegrown Smoker? No. So before he started his food truck, Mm -hmm. he worked at Cisco doing Uh advising. So he's a vegan now. He's a huge proponent of veganism. So I find that interesting that you now in that position are talking about the same thing. Yeah, uh, you, I, I gotta turn, I gotta get there because for my health I need to do that, and I tend to scoff at it, unfortunately. Yeah, well, I, I think as you know, we're an aging nation. You know, the average age here now with the baby boomers pushing out towards seventy three, seventy four years old. I mean, we're, that's going to expedite much like climate change is expediting. I think that the way people eat is going to expedite because it just gets harder for people to digest. You know, food that's tough on the body, you know? So I think it's interesting. I think the, the vegan kind of like topic gets scoffed at and people make fun of it. But the reality is, is that the human body itself generally does better when not getting I, stuffed I, down. You know, I beat myself <laughs> up when I do that because I just know in the back of my head, this is the healthiest way to go. Yeah. And I'm an idiot for a guy with health problems, not, not imminent, but in the long term, I know I got, I have things I have to watch and eventually might have to become a vegan. Yeah, I just discussed it, it this weekend. It'll be interesting to watch this. My generation of chefs, you know, nationwide, you know, in terms of what is going on, and we've seen some already uh, depart, you know. And I think that that, and it's interesting how the chefs, you know, bled over into the health category. Like all of a sudden, they were the ones talking about, you know, health and good food and not drinking too much and all this stuff. And then we have the sobriety movement with the chefs too, because uh, of what just, the industry does. We just talked about that with Gregory yeah. Gourdet, and then nice little perfect circle. We like to be like. Seinfeld and Kirby Enthusiasm here. We like to come back to what we were talking about. Adam Adam and Jackie Sappington opening a vegan, you know, buying, um, is it, uh, oh, what's the name, Harlow? The Harlow, yeah. Yeah, buying Harlow. The, they were the the consummate meat restaurant, and now they're doing, they're, it's interesting. I want to have them on to talk about that, too. Yeah. What, prob- do you, what, do you, what excites you about the food industry going forward as someone who's been in it since you were 11 and actually in it from birth because you were eating. Yeah, they had my baby shower in the restaurant before I was born. Right. I was like ordained, mm-hmm. you know, indoctrinated before I had my first breath, you know, and, and here I am 57 uh, years later still thinking and breathing it. And yeah, I mean, I kind of long for that crafted meal that you've never had before, you know, honestly, I think in my culinary dreams, it's still about, you know, traveling through some roadside in Japan and coming to some ramen place that just blows your mind that nobody's ever heard of before and you feel like you've found something, you know. I think it is tricky to find really unique experiences with food. 
in terms of our generic landscape. My, my father-in-law just traveled to Uzbekistan, I believe, and he said, you know, a lot of these, he was just there last week, and he said, a lot of these cities kind of look the same now. You know, they're kind of starting to see this mainstream. And that I think the more that we homogenize things, I think the more that those of us that are truly passionate will seek out the unique experience. And we can do that at home. You know, I can mm-hmm. do that at home. I just, uh, my neighbor just moved and gave me his wood-fired oven. You know, I'm thinking about buying a tandoor and putting it in my backyard to recreate the days at Wildwood. We had a tandoor oven uh, day in and day out. Well, I think what, what <laughs> should happen is you should do that on Tuesday. Yeah. And Greg Higgins does his pizza yeah, thing right. on Monday. Yeah. Which I thought was at the restaurant. I found out it was at his house when I went to sit in the bar and order a pizza on Monday. <laughs> but yeah, everybody have a different night to do something fun and then just sort of start a pop-up. And uh, that might be a, an avenue to go. So uh, I would love to hear when you and your wife go out on a date night, where you're going in Portland now. What, what's exciting you in Portland? Well, you know, the answer to that, Chris, I mean, I'd like to keep my money in my friends' pockets. You know, a lot of those people that we mentioned, you know, Kathy Wims, we love Nustrana, Dave Machado's places in Central we've liked over the years. And, you know, I know my, my wife works downtown and she gets over to Paley's new place, you know. So we're kind of economic in terms of how we spread the money around, you know. I have a nine-year-old daughter, Greta, who's a big uh, ramen fan, so we find ourselves, you know, at uh, some ramen restaurants periodically, you know, cooking at home. But I, you wouldn't I, have done that ten years ago. If she were nine, ten years ago, you wouldn't have had the options. That's now true. there are a lot of them. That's true. That's true. I'm not. You know, I love this the cart down the street here. Uh, uh, Bing me the little crepes they make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then there's a place out on 87th and Division that uh, my coworker uh, Ryan at Cisco mentioned. It's called uh, Master Kong. Master Kong is a Chinese restaurant on the north side of the street, 87th and Division. They make these incredible scallion pancakes, and they do the the the, the crepes too, big meat crepes. And uh, so it's you know it's kind of, you know it's like I can let's talk about places that were in Portland back in 1975, like the Golden Dragon over there next to Cameron's Bookstore at three in the morning. What did the fish grotto used to look like at two in the morning back in 1981? You know, I'm trying to think of like Grand Central Bowling. Oh my goodness. What did that look like in 1977? Those are all, they they aren't familiar to me, but I'm glad, I'm sure there are a lot of people who could put together an interesting book and stories of those places. Yeah, what is it Karen Brooks used to call it? She wrote a book in 79, I think called The Cuisine of the Rain is what it was called. In '79, Karen. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I think that's right. Do you recall her first review of Wildwood? Yeah, yeah. I, well, you know, we were very fortunate. She moved in there and she gave us Restaurant of the Year off the bat back in '95. And she she was a master of disguises, or she tried to be. You know, I think my general manager was pretty good at spotting her. You know, and so I I never I was a little naive. I think she came in and started asking me questions about a review. I thought she was just asking me questions about food. You know, and just, <laughs> back then she was like, "And uh, what kind of recipes are you guys using to try?" And this is like early on, right? You know, we're just going crazy in the kitchen, and I'm like, "We don't use recipes." You know, I mean, which is kind of an interesting looking back. Like, oh, you're so arrogant. What do you mean? You guys are charting this map on your own without recipes, you know, and guidelines and so on, too. But there, to what we talked about earlier, the food was driving that mission, you know. But yeah, Karen came in and uh, guys from the Willamette Week. And, you know, that whole thing's kind of gone now, too. The consumers have become the reviewers, I guess you would say. You know, what happened to the great articulate journals of gastronomy? You know, people really knew about food, came in, were the authority. I guess that's well. Uh, <laughs> I think they're still relevant. They're just watered down a little bit yeah. because people aren't necessarily. It's not the only source. Yeah. Like when I started, I mentioned Food Dude. I was reading his long form reviews, mm-hmm. and I thought that was fantastic. Mm-hmm. In those days, you didn't have 
what you have now, all the options for finding it out. Now you can just subscribe to Instagram and start hearing about people. Are you into the Instagram? Yeah, yeah, I got the, the cooking from the sources on there. I follow it uh, myself. I'm definitely into it. You know, and I think back back in the day, well, like when the New York Times showed up, uh, Brian Miller, I think was the writer's name, you know, or when uh, uh, John Mariani showed up from the Wine Spectator and stuff. I mean, that, that was getting Portland out on the map back then. You had all roads went through New York. You know, I had a PR agent, uh, you know, Lisa Donahue, who lived in New York. So we kept that main line going. We realized that in order to broadcast this message, you know, we had to do that, which is interesting. You know, Wildwood used to be, that building for 40 years was the radio school of broadcasting. It was a correspondence school for one radio and you had to train people in military, sports, academia. Mm-hmm. There was a guy, his name was uh, Bill Sawyer. He owned it. He built it. He's the one who sold it, not to me, but to the, the owner. And that was the radio school of broadcasting. And you can actually still see on the front there, nobody notices it, but the imprint of the word broadcast is still embedded on the front of that restaurant in the metal to the left of the door. And I always thought that was interesting because I loved Bill. So he was a, he became a friend of mine because he kept a, a business next door. And we used to have, I actually uh, interviewed him a couple of times because he was in his 90s. Mm. He knew Portland for long ago. It was the radio school broadcasting. So I said, well, we had an obligation to broadcast what we were doing. <laughs> Another industry that's changed a lot, <laughs> yes, too. So, yeah, um, yeah. Interesting that you put those two together. Man, we got to do this again because I knew an hour wouldn't be enough. Oh, well, with what, you, a, what but, a pleasure. But a uh, complete pleasure and fascinating, too. And the the hour we haven't done yet is going to be as fascinating, as, if not more. So we have yeah, to. The content we'd love to is have endless. You back. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it is. And, you know, doing a podcast, sometimes 60 minutes takes six hours and sometimes it takes four minutes. Well, you're so and good so to give people fast... the time to do it. I think that's rare in itself. So thank you for you know cutting well, this we out try. for people we tr- in the industry to talk. Give them a voice. You know, yeah. it's great. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for uh, being a part of this industry. I have a feeling a lot of people are going to want to listen to this. Oh. Probably more people who don't, don't subscribe to as many podcasts. But I think it's starting to seep its way into... Uh, you know, the over 40, over 50 li- lifestyle. Hey, I kept my language clean, you know. I <laughs> oh, you don't have to do that. But the other thing you didn't do is use the word amazing once. I, think. Uh, I read your note. Thank you. <laughs> it's interesting how that works, but I still stand by that. It's a good idea to get people to use a different word. I'm with you. It's like a recipe. You can't be, keep using the same, same yeah. ingredients all the time. Thank you so much, Corey. Thank Appreciate you, it. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com.